This is not a review. This is an impact statement. This is Dr. Scarelove. Attention. The following may contain material deemed unsuitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. More importantly, this episode may contain spoilers. Consider yourself warned. If you have not seen the film or films featured in this episode, the Scarelove Society recommends pausing now, then returning with the stories fresh in your mind. Still here? Okay, let's open the door. Does your mind torment you? Do you feel out of control? Pushed around by outside influences? Do you feel lost? How many avenues have you taken? And how many of those resulted in a dead end? or a sharp drop-off into the inky blackness of the abyss? What promising therapies and alternative religions have promised an escape only to close the circle, imprisoning you in the never-ending navigation of life's complex maze? The letdown you feel must be enormous. Your circuits are fried. Your nerves are worn to shreds. You are on the edge every day, seeking something to grab, something to hold on to, a solid to prevent you from tumbling over the edge. All hope, it seems, is lost. What if we told you there was another way? What if you were given that lifeline? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Today, you will find that hope you lost, a map to lead you out of the maze. Today, you will be able to find the light at the end of the darkened tunnel that has been your existence. Today, you will find freedom. Why? Because today, you discovered psychoplasmics. It is hard to overestimate the importance of David Cronenberg's filmmaking. From the removal of a fleshy firearm that manifested in James Wood's stomach cavity to Jeff Goldblum's grotesque transformation into the Brundlefly, Cronenberg has been churning the guts of moviegoers for nearly five decades, while simultaneously exploring the most resonant and relatable horrors to the human race the fear of what lives inside of us. His, for the most part, are films that do away with alien influence, either literal or figurative, and instead let the terror bubble up from the inner confines of the characters' bodies, which, in turn, is a product, generally, of their own mind. The dripping malformed Brundlefly is a product of Seth Brundle's nearly limitless genius. In the words of another of Goldblum's famous characters, 
He was so busy thinking of whether or not he could, he didn't stop to think if he should. The ruthless TV executive Max Wren and his never-ending search for higher ratings brings the horror of the Videodrome broadcast to American viewers, while at the same time being ravaged by the very signal he's found, leaving the viewer to wonder if this is really an outside influence or if it's his own desensitization and guilt from exposing this to audiences that mutates and destroys his flesh. What's common in both, though, and many of Cronenberg's films, often, is that the body horror stems from the mental aberrance, or unintentional mental creation, the psychological ramifications of what one's own mind can do to themselves and others. None of them, however, explore the connection between the mind and the body better than 1979's The Brood. Hidden within snatches of breathtaking forest and winding two-lane mountain roads is the revolutionary Soma Free Institute, an elective inpatient facility for individuals seeking an alternative to standard mental health care. This is where the peace you crave can be found. The remote building and grounds provide an idyllic escape for sufferers of a wide range of emotional and mental disturbance. The tranquility of the location and the dedicated staff provides a not only beneficial experience, but an unforgettable one as well. Established by renowned psychotherapist Dr. Hal Raglan, the Soma Free Institute was created to give unique individuals the unique care and treatment they have been searching for. His new practice, known as psychoplasmics, encourages patients to hone in on the source of their trauma, to discover their repressed memories, to hold and understand that pain and how it has continued to affect their mental health and their interpersonal relationships. Dr. Raglan does not allow his patients to stop with recognition, but pushes them to let go of these traumatic experiences and severely suppressed emotional issues through physical manifestations in the body. Physiological changes allow the sufferer to feel the physical change along with the mental, which adds to the sensation of letting go, of distancing oneself from the torment of pain, grief, and trauma. Don't wait. This is where your search ends. Call the Soma Free Institute today for your first consultation with Dr. Raglan. Find your freedom. The manifestation of physical symptoms due to emotional trauma isn't anything new. Headaches, upset stomach, exhaustion are just a few of the ways people feel their emotions. Some break out in hives, some experience cold sweats. New studies in mindful thinking and cognitive behavioral therapy are also worth noting that anxiety and depression have literal connections to the belly. The organ operates as a secondary mind, a satellite emotional center delegating physical responses to triggers and increases in serotonin dumps. The bottom line is this. The human body responds with physiological changes to mental and emotional stress. We are unable to contain the sensations of our now mental processes, and they bleed into reality in a variety of ways. This, in its own way, adds even more stress to human beings. 
Physical changes like puberty or menopause are often felt like unwanted intruders, their bodies suddenly rebelling, morphing into instruments that they didn't ask for, nor do they want. These aren't sudden changes, and most are aware of the various physical changes they will go through in life. But this does not mean that such experiences don't feel alien, foreign, and entirely unwelcome. Underneath all this is the true issue, the lack of control. Human beings cannot control the weather, the rising of the tides, or the rotation of the planets above. They cannot control the behaviors of others, friends, family, or strangers. The lack of control is all around us, so we often rely on the steady notion that one thing we do have control of is ourselves. We can lose or gain weight, add muscle, or elect to perform surgeries to alter our appearances. In a world of chaos, the solace lies in the husks of flesh and bones we call our own. At least, we think so. This safe harbor is shattered when we receive a cancer or other terminal diagnosis or when even normal, anticipated change takes over. We lose the sense of security, of perceived sovereignty. We become imprisoned by the very body which once promised the constant foundational control our minds need. It's weak. You're not looking at me, Mike. You're not looking at me in the eyes. It's weak. Only weak people. I could look you in the eye if, if I wanted to, Daddy. I, I just, I just don't want to look you in the eye. I guess you're just a weak person. Must have got that from your mother. It probably would have been better for you had you been born a girl. And we could have named you Michelle. You see, weakness is more acceptable than a girl, Michelle. I'm sorry, I mean Mike. I keep forgetting. Wait a minute. Why did I call you Michelle all the time? And I wouldn't have to be so goddamn fucking ashamed of you and your weaknesses. I could just think of you as a girl all the time, couldn't I? By your frocks and your dresses and your frilly hats and your frilly scarves, and you could be you could be daddy's little girl. I wouldn't have to be so fucking ashamed of being seen with you in public, would I, eh? Nola Carvath responded to treatment at the Soma Free Institute almost immediately. Through therapeutic sessions, Nola's deep trauma was revealed to be a product of her alcoholic parents and their consistent physical and emotional abuse. This childhood produced deep-seated fear of abandonment, disillusionment, and had produced a bevy of resentments, as well as severe instability in her personal relationships, leading to estrangement from her husband, Frank, as well as a bitter custody battle over her five-year-old daughter, Candace. Frank, wary of Nola's behavior and the treatment that seems to be creating an even wider schism in his marriage, investigates both Dr. Ragland and his new methods of treatment. He finds that when patients let go of their emotions through forced physiological changes, the results aren't always entirely positive. While not proven to be directly connected, a former patient of Ragland's has suddenly manifested malignant lymphoma. Psychoplasmic therapy 
is suspected of literally creating the cancer that will kill them. Mental anguish can be resolved, yet at the expense of one's physical body. Raglan's methods, it seems, have severe side effects. Did you say something? Such a soft little girl's voice, I couldn't hear what you said. Speak up! Hit you! Makes me feel guilty inside. Hate. I can't hard speak. Don't speak. You speak to me. Show me. Don't tell me about it. I'm not interested in what little girls have to say anyway. Show me. Show me your anger. Show me, then I can understand it. There you are, Daddy. There you are. Through conversations with Nola's mother, Juliana, Frank discovers that his wife manifested physical symptoms of her mental anguish as a child. Nola has already exhibited the ability to produce physiological changes from her trauma, making her an even better candidate for psychoplasmic therapy. Later, after Frank leaves Candace with her grandmother to continue his investigation, Juliana is attacked by a dwarf-like being and she dies in her kitchen while Candace looks on in horror. Although the attacker isn't recognized, the crime is apparently premeditated and focused solely on Nola's mother. Nothing is stolen, and Candace, although visible, is untouched. Juliana's gruesome death is, in this way, a product of revenge or reprisal. She was targeted. When her father, Barton, who has since been divorced from Nola's mother, returns for the funeral, he learns of his daughter's care at Somafri. After being denied access to his daughter at the Institute, he drunkenly insists Frank help him, but is killed by the same creature who murdered Juliana. The dwarf child is also killed in the process, and the autopsy notes distressing anomalies, including asexuality and the absence of a navel that led investigators to conclude that the being wasn't born in the way other human beings are. There is no evidence of a physical connection to their mother, making their existence not only frustrating, but completely alien with regard to modern understanding of human physiology. It is as if they were created out of thin air. While changes to our bodies as a result of mental instability are frightening and often traumatic, would this still be the case if we could use them to our advantage? If we could harness the power of transformation? What if a woman who has been the victim of sexual assault could manifest vaginal dentata or retractable claws to use against future attackers? How about a star running back who suffers a career-ending injury? What if he could regrow cartilage or develop a hardened shell around his broken limb, making it stronger than before? What if we could regrow ligaments? What if we could, after years of traumatic verbal abuse and bullying, could will our bodies to change, to lose weight or stretch bones in order to eradicate the source of torment? But these are just a few examples of changes within ourselves. If physical manifestations are possible, why must they stop at the boundaries of our skin? Take Max Wren, for example. His torment transforms an enemy's hand into a hand grenade that explodes, killing him. He transforms his own hand into a pistol to take his own life. 
its bullet leaving Ren's body, only to enter his skull again to effectively end the mental torment he's been experiencing. Of course, there is more to the film, Videodrome, such as a social commentary on the influence of television. But for the purposes of today's exploration, these bodily transformations represent an acute response to trauma. What if our own mental disturbances could produce a physical answer to the source responsible for our pain? Like malformed beings created for the sole purpose of hunting down a woman's rapist, or the opposing team member who snapped their femur. What if you could, consciously or not, send those beings to kill the persons responsible for the mental anguish you've suffered since childhood? Your alcoholic parents? Would you? This is not a justification for murder, nor for revenge, but an acknowledgement that knowing your past and present tormentors might be held accountable somehow is enticing, especially if you aren't liable for such a thing. Your mind producing hives or cold sweats would, and in essence, be the same as producing murderous minions to attack any and all threats. The possible manifestations and their repercussions are endless, as well as terrifying. But damn, if the thought of mentally produced karma isn't tempting. Ruth, Candace's teacher, is next to be murdered. To make matters worse, her death is in front of her entire class, Candace included. Earlier, while speaking with Frank at his home, Ruth answered the phone when Nola called. While she was discussing Candace, the feminine voice coming from her estranged husband's telephone is enough to convince the fragile Nola of infidelity. This, of course, pushes her mind into defense mode, seeking to remove the source of her anguish. Twin dwarves enter the classroom and beat the teacher to death, leaving the students, Candace among them, unharmed. Upon leaving, the intruders abduct Candace, leaving Frank to chase after them. As if it weren't already apparent, these are not alien beings. They are not supernatural monsters or demons. They are the product of Nola's mind, seeking retribution for the perceived injustices taking out any and everyone who is responsible for the fragile mental state she has found herself in. Though, murder aside, isn't this really just a proactive defense mechanism? Studies about the mind's often strange but proactive coping measures are endless. Those with agoraphobia might find themselves with a stomachache or flu-like symptoms when they reach for the handle of the front door. The mind takes over, manifesting physical sensations that will halt the individual from going out into the world to the source of the trauma. Although experiencing this might lead to an eventual handling of the phobia, the mind seems to be concerned with acute symptoms rather than long-term health. The defense is against the momentary threat, keeping the individual safe by creating physical issues to prevent them from entry to their fears. Others, like those with obsessive-compulsive thinking disorders, will be given horrifying thoughts and physical sensations that are directly linked to their deep-seated fears. This isn't a product of a renegade brain. A this isn't a product of a renegade brain, a malignant force rebelling against the host body, but underneath it all, an assurance of survival. Sufferers of this will often have seemingly average, successful lives happy families and fulfilling careers. They are in good health. 
So why are they plagued by terrifying thoughts of hurting others, or the paranoia of home invasion, even though they've never lashed out on another soul, nor have they ever been the victim of a crime? Survival. Self-preservation. Human beings need to be accepted, to be a part of the larger scheme of support, familial, societal, and so forth. This stems from the animalistic drive to maintain their position within herds or packs. Survival, of course, is paramount. If their behavior is deemed unacceptable by the group, they are ostracized, and their survival is in jeopardy. The same is true of humans. Hurting others is inappropriate by modern civilized society, and doing so will result in imprisonment. Home invasion may result in the loss of life within the family structure, upending the structure they've come to rely on for continued survival. So why on earth would the brain produce thoughts of the very things they are repulsed by? The answer is simple. Control. The mind keeps these images, often forcing them upon us to ensure that we are ever vigilant, on edge, ready to recognize aberration in ourselves and others. In this way, the mind is trying to control the narrative, to prepare the individual for the worst-case scenario. That way, if on the off chance that those events harming others or being harmed ever come to fruition, they will be ready. They will survive. As awful as these things might be, there is some solace in the notion that your own mind isn't rebelling but trying its hardest to defend you and to protect you. Similarly, manifesting grotesque, inhuman creatures to kill your perceived tormentors might sound horrifying, but can we find solace in knowing they're only trying to protect you? Dr. Raglan acknowledges the dangers inherent in psychoplasmics and has closed the Soma Free Institute, sending everyone to other facilities, with the exception of Nola, the most powerful of his patients. He admits to Frank that the dwarves are what the viewers have assumed all along, a product of Nola's treatment. Through parthenogenesis, a form of asexual reproduction brought about by his therapeutic techniques, Nola has spawned a whole brood of children who respond and react to Nola's mental disturbances, though he insists Nola has no idea about their actions. She assumes they are unintentional products of her repressed rage, and with each birth, she feels closer to escape. They are hidden in the attic space of the Soma Free Institute, the same place they've taken Frank and Nola's daughter, Candace. She's unharmed and further being protected by the brood. These aren't only agents of retribution, but also of maternal protection. Nola's psychoplasmic abilities, it would appear, manifest with all manner of emotions. This obviously has led Dr. Raglan to encourage and nurture her treatment, as she is so responsive as he gains continual evidence to support his work. And his eagerness to achieve results lets the situation spiral well beyond his control. His closing of the Institute is the first step in curbing the disturbance side effects he's helped create. Murder, it is assumed, doesn't lead to Nobel Prizes. No! I disgust you. I sicken you. You hate me! Medical treatment, both physical and mental, is constantly evolving. Techniques such as the frontal lobe lobotomy, or further back, the process of bleeding patients to rid them of influenza, 
were once lauded as not only revolutionary, but the pinnacle of modern medicine. Bed rest, isolation, aversion therapy, and shock therapy are some of the treatments for mental illness that have fallen out of favor, but were once the standard. What this teaches us is that there is no definitive answer to any of the myriad maladies the human body can and will endure. The process of treatment will continue to evolve as long as the human body does, making it so each endeavor, once celebrated, will be replaced in due time. Reglan's psychoplasmic techniques aren't cruel, as the murderous mutant offspring might lead one to believe, but an accidental and unfortunate side effect for what he once truly believed was the next logical step in the treatment of mental illness. While his eagerness may have led to blindness, especially with regard to how it was affecting other people around his patients, but this isn't true of all unproven techniques. Does aversion therapy not alienate friends and family from the patient, or shock treatments create strangers of people once held close? We are not pretending to be well-versed in the psychiatric field, nor do we profess to know statistics about the casual side effects of past treatments and their lasting effects on patients, but what we do internalize is their portrayal in literature and film, which, by and large, is wholly negative. At first glance, Raglan's prescriptive avenues might appear to be just another to throw into the rubbish bin along with other outdated and inhumane practices. But is it? The results, of course, are abhorrent, but were his intentions not in the right place? Did Dr. Manas set out to create irreversible horror with his first lobotomy? Did Sir Letty and Beanie aim to worsen symptoms with electroconvulsive treatments? Of course not. All of these treatments, Reglan's included, begin with the desire to provide help and care to the suffering. The issue, however, the issue, however, is that those with unintended and atrocious side effects are often permitted to go on too long. And therein lies the horror. The road to hell, we now know, is paved with brood intentions. In what appears to be his attempt at righting the ship, at righting the wrongs he has created, Raglan volunteers to go and retrieve Candace, while Frank works to keep Nola calm. When she is in a happier, content state, her creations lay dormant, sleeping in the confines of the attic, apparently resting until Nola's repressed rage blossoms once again. You didn't come here because you love me. You came here to take our daughter away and give it to somebody else. It is here that Frank witnesses the actual product of Raglan's treatment. Nola is revealed to have developed a secondary external womb, and to his horror gives birth to another dwarf child. Her physical manifestations are increasing as her rage worsens, showing that while therapy might be working, the side effects drastically outweigh the benefits. Here, we must take a brief detour. This scene, while lambasted as grotesque by critics like Richard Ebert, is an important exploration of not only motherhood, but of the nursing of mental wounds. Once chopped up by censors, the scene makes it look as if Nola eats either the afterbirth or the child, or both. Her face is bloody and fiendish, and if we take this edited version into consideration, this can be interpreted as Nola taking back these manifestations, re-internalizing them, absorbing the pain and torment again, like sin eaters. 
The consumption of her trauma could, in this way, represent her conquering these repressed emotions and owning them. The consumption of her trauma could, in this way, represent her conquering these repressed emotions, owning them, overcoming them, and in turn, showing that Raglan's treatment, although horrifying in its side effects, actually works. However, we must consider the original scene in all of its unedited glory. At the suggestion of Samantha Egger, the actress portraying Nola Carvith, the scene features the woman repeatedly licking the infant, though not in a devious fashion. No, she appears animalistic in her maternal cleansing, wiping away the blood much like a lioness might. The scene is loving rather than murderous. Viewers are encouraged to see her treating her physical manifestations and, thus, her repressed trauma tenderly rather than with violence. In this way, Nola's behavior mirrors modern understanding of anxiety and depression, wherein therapists and counselors encourage patients to not ignore or push away their intrusive thoughts, but to sum themselves compassion and understanding. Whichever image the viewer receives, vicious cannibalism or tender cleansing, Frank's reaction remains. He is horrified by the whole scene. His attitude and demeanor causes Nola to become enraged and defensive, which goes a long way to reflect the stigma of mental health care. Outside observers often treat sufferers poorly, sometimes going as far as to label them various names or disparage their behavior rather than take the time to understand that their illness and chosen treatment, while maybe strange to others, could be the answer to their pain. Frank's reaction triggers, it is assumed, the feelings of abuse and abandonment that landed Nola and Soma Free in the first place. Her rage awakens, as do her slumbering manifestations in the attic. The brood kills Ragland, the creator succumbing to his own creation, then go after Candace, their murderous intentions directed at Nola's only daughter. Triggered by the notion that Candace may leave her, the brood chases her into a closet, gnashing and grabbing at her. Nola seems to say, if I can't have you, no one will. The devilish creations are nearly successful in murdering Candace, but are rendered useless as Frank strangles his wife to death. Once their host is gone, they die. And here, we are given one last lesson. Pain, trauma, and their side effects die with us. They disappear, but their effects on others close to us will undoubtedly leave scars. When Frank finally gets his daughter to safety, and the viewer is given a glimmer of hope for the future, Cronenberg's gaze focuses in, narrows onto a patch of Candace's skin. Two red welts have appeared that resemble the exact condition Nola suffered from as a child. These, we understand, are a product of emotional and mental trauma at the hands of her parents. We are led to understand that mental disturbances are not only hereditary, but compounded and amplified by the cyclical nature of generational behavior. We don't just pass down blue eyes and receding hairlines to our children, but also the lingering blemishes of insidious mental trauma hidden within the core of our own existence.
Research for this episode was conducted by Dr. Krista Marie DeBanke and Dr. Drew Atana, co-founders of the Scarelove Society, with invaluable assistance provided by the Library of Miskatonic University, where Dr. Scarelove's writings are housed. The Scarelove Society welcomes listener support with liking, sharing, and subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you discover your podcasts. The Society also has a Patreon dedicated to the preservation and distribution of Dr. Scarelove's ideas. Each donation also ensures membership into the Scarelove Society itself. Every click and donation is greatly appreciated and works toward ensuring usually closed doors remain open. For more information and source material of this or any episode, please visit drscarelove.com.